So, Sean, we're back again this week, but I feel like we've both made it through the last two weeks. It has felt a bit like survival <laughs> with both of us having caught and then recovered from COVID. I think pointing out that caught it from separate places. We weren't meeting up. There's in the been no danger of us catching it from each other, has there? No. Yes, and of course, busy January now with the insurance year ends and all of that sort of work. But I really like the fact that we're sort of casting our minds broader today and looking at the whole topic of machine learning. Because although people aren't necessarily thinking about it a huge amount as they finalize their accounts, it's definitely something that's going to become more and more important as the year goes on. It's sometimes nice to keep those thoughts ticking in the back of your mind so that when you've got a little bit more headspace, you're kind of ready to explore these ideas a bit further. I like that we're doing this topic because to me, it's a topic where so many things need to be debunked, demystified. Yes, there is some very clever maths involved, but there's also some real practical stuff. And I can't think of anyone better than our guest today to help us understand those. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions. So please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Our guest today is Charlie Stone, a principal at LCP, who helps insurers gain a competitive advantage by using ideas from data science to improve the efficiency and quality of actuarial work. He has experience helping insurers on all aspects of their business and has been fundamental in the development of InsureSight, which is LCP's award-winning analytics and automated trend identification platform for general insurers. So welcome to the podcast, Charlie. I think, Charlie, we should start off by just covering a few basics. So I'm sure most of our listeners have heard about machine learning and analytics, but maybe just so we're all on the same page, 30 seconds, what is machine learning? Machine learning is really just statistics, but with a very strong focus, almost a complete focus on being able to predict something rather than necessarily being able to interpret the resulting model, which is often where the kind of difference between what people would just call statistics and then kind of more recent development, which is machine learning, which is that kind of ultra focus on prediction. Where is it currently used very heavily? Not necessarily just insurance, kind of more widely. Where is machine learning really used? So it's used a lot in companies where they're bespoking things for a, a lot of customers and they've got bespoke things for each individual customer. Things that you use in your personal life like Netflix, Spotify, recommendations for things, recommendation systems on things like Amazon, when you search for something on Google, and then things like translation on Google, face recognition, which is used on things like your phone. So you can go and find a picture of someone just by typing their name in and it will get all the pictures on your phone with that person in. There's lots and lots of examples. But a lot of the examples where it's been applied really well and is really ingrained in people's use of it is on those kind of where you've got a very large customer base and there's a bespoke thing that needs to be done for each customer, whether that's a recommendation or translating a specific thing or a specific search request. And then translating that to the insurance world, Charlie, what do you see as being the main applications for machine learning and insurance? 
I think the main ones to date would be things like optical character recognition, where you've got a lot of paper-based forms. I think it's less the case now than it perhaps was three to five years ago, where some insurers are still doing a lot of work with paper-based systems and actually digitizing a lot of those paper records that you still get coming in from people like loss adjusters, being able to just feed those into a scanner and then machine learning would then pick out the text from that. So you then got it in a digitized form. I think that's something that insurers have been doing a lot of over the last few years. So more recent developments would be things like automating claims handling processes. So particularly where you've got a large volume of small value claims and the kind of risk of the machine learning getting it wrong is smaller. So insurers putting a lot of work and actually have deployed systems on things like that, kind of robotic claims handling processes. On things like fault rating systems, how likely is our driver to be at fault or not? And then that influencing how which cases you want to prioritize on defending, whereas those you just accept that your driver's at fault and close it quickly. Do you see it potentially being used more in the near-term future? Yeah, I think a really interesting place that could go for insurers is from moving from a loss event has happened and then trying to help the policyholder, the claimant, to resolve the situation when something bad has already happened, to moving to a predict and prevent based service that sounds like a slogan for like a political party or something (laughs) (laughs) yeah maybe next election (laughs) someone will steal that sorry predict and prevent covid that would have been good (laughs) yeah but in the insurance world this is where machine learning kind of ties in with internet of things where you could have sensor devices on things like oil pipelines and even on things close to home like a washing machine which might have an extended warranty policy on rather than something just going wrong with it and it it's broken and you need to get it fixed the sensor actually says we predict there's a high chance that if you don't replace this part then the whole machine is going to break in a month's time i think that's great from a customer point of view you'd rather that bad thing didn't happen and good from an insurance point of view because you can reduce the claims costs and provide a better service to the customer there's some interesting questions there though in terms of if you're providing that extended warranty policy and someone gets a warning that actually the machine learning driven sensor on the machine says that it's going to break unless you repair this part and then they don't put the new part in what does that mean for that policy if the claim does come through on it yeah absolutely the examples that we've talked about so far many of them are focused on the insurance customer and i'm sure that'll continue to be really important in this area but clearly we're aware that you have done a huge amount of work on the implications of machine learning for insurers' internal processes, including risk management, financial projections, and those sorts of things. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? I think I would say a lot of what I've been talking about so far is using machine learning for automation. And I'd say there's two main ways that you can use machine learning in a process. There's automation, and then there's actually augmenting what a person is doing. So kind of giving them superpowers if you like which means they (laughs) enjoy the task more can focus on the higher value tasks where they're actually adding value and potentially be more creative as well i want a suit like a superhero suit (laughs) for the augmenting (laughs) a superhero with prevent and predict on the (laughs) we'll get you a cape jess we're all back in the office (laughs) what i've been working on is trying to do that within the reserving space so one of the things we did initially with insuresight was being able to automate the detection of trends in important reserving diagnostics. So actually, you could kind of have the superpower of going in and just looking over a whole data set at much wider range of granularities than they could if they're doing it manually. 
and just see those important trends highlighted and prioritized for them to review. So not going into a kind of purely automated approach because something like reserving, at least over the next couple of years, I don't really see us moving that far because it's more high stakes if you get it wrong. But actually helping people to do things better, spend their time on the right areas is where I see machine learning being helpful. A key question that some people listening to this podcast might be concerned about when they hear about machine learning is are they still going to have a job in so many years time? How do you see machine learning and people working in the insurance industry working together? It'll change for sure. And I think that's one of the things that people will have to get more used to is moving away from a fairly static process to either something that gets automated and the human involvement becomes more of a second or third line role where you're auditing that automated system or almost putting a risk cap view on it to say, well, what are the systemic risks and issues with this automated approach? And potentially then doing kind of specific manual reviews of a sample of cases to make sure the automation is working as intended. On the augmentation side, I think there will be more of a value in the kind of higher end skills on specific processes. So things like claims handling, the jobs of handling the write-off of a vehicle on a motor insurance claim, relatively small value damage claims. I think that there'll be a lot of automation in that. Jobs will move away from that and more onto the skills of handling like a large bodily injury claim. And I think we'll see that in things like underwriting as well. We already are, I think, where some policies can be written algorithmically, whereas others where you really need a detailed understanding of the risk and really need to bespoke the cover for the insured. That's where we'll continue to see human involvement augmented with machine learning driven processes as well. And that algorithmic underwriting you mentioned, is that an example of machine learning or artificial intelligence or what is it exactly? An example of that at the moment in the London market space is Key Syndicate, where they have an algorithm, I believe, driven by machine learning that will decide, given a risk that a broker submits on their platform, whether they want to follow on that risk and what percentage they will follow. So it's not saying, what price should we charge for this? It's just determining the follow percentage. And I think that's a good example of how you deploy machine learning as well, because rather than just saying, use a machine learning process to determine the premium, and that's just going to be purely automated, which obviously gets it wrong, you could get it drastically wrong. You instead ask it to give you something like the follow percentage, which within bounds, so say you only ever write max 10, 15% of a risk, there's only so badly it can get it wrong if it gets it wrong. Another area where things can go wrong, I'm aware of there being kind of a risk, is around introducing biases and other kind of discrimination potentially as part of the kind of algorithms. And say maybe when it comes to like underwriting and stuff, you could end up engineering them in such a way. Is that a big risk? Is that a significant risk? I think it is, particularly because it can arise inadvertently with machine learning. We're feeding in a lot of data and then may pick up on features that aren't necessarily directly related to someone's race or gender or age, but implicitly is picked up based on other characteristics. Also with things like chatbots, so the data that's been used to train them, there's loads of examples where machine learning systems have been developed with training data from, say, largely white male between the ages of 18 to 40, and you develop a chatbot based on the sort of language that those people use. And then you deploy it to your customers, which may be a different set of people. And actually, it doesn't actually serve 
that set of customers so well because they're of a different race or gender or age to what the, the training data for the chatbot was actually used on. So it's also things as subtle as that. You may think, well, I've got a load of data on kind of human conversations. You might not necessarily be aware of that, where that's come from or think about what sector of society that's from. So I guess the key with that is good testing before you deploy it is the ultimate safeguard, but also make sure that people developing these systems are thinking about these issues as well. Now, Charlie, I want to come back for a moment to algorithmic underwriting, because you'll know from your experience, a classic problem in the insurance market would be you've got a star underwriter who delivers really good results year after year, but no one can quite quantify what it is that they do that makes them so good. It's difficult to get in their head and understand their thought process. Now, does algorithmic underwriting solve that? If your algorithm is good, obviously your results will be good, but will you be able to understand why it's good? Or is it going to basically be a black box that you've just got to trust to keep delivering results? That's quite a hard one. How do you effectively get a star underwriter through machine learning or make sure it's as reliable as that? I guess one thing I would say is sometimes do you know why the star underwriter, the human, is getting the results that they're getting? Might be able to come up with a reason for you. How much do you believe that or know that that's the true reason for why they're actually getting those results? Maybe they were just lucky. With machine learning, I guess you're clear on the process that it's following in terms of how it's been trained. So you might not be able to explain exactly why it's selecting certain risks, but you could understand the overall process in terms of, is it just looking at past performance or is it taking into account information on how much competitors are currently writing on these risks, what recent rate changes have been? And perhaps you could understand how that can give a level of performance similar to a human or better because it can incorporate rate change from across the market on risks that have currently being written or written in the last say week or two which a human underwriter may find it harder to get that kind of really up-to-date market view because they can't just ingest all that data and process it as quickly as a machine could and obviously that depends on the size of the line of business that's being written where the human underwriter might be able to do that better or as easily as a machine but on other classes where the amount of business is much larger or increasingly amounts of it are being written outside of the face-to-face box, which I guess we've seen during lockdowns and things, the human underwriter might not be seeing or have a feel for the rate change of recent market conditions in the same way. So, Charlie, I wanted to talk a little bit about if we imagine an actuarial team working within an insurance firm now, what should be the areas in which they should be looking to deploy machine learning over the coming years to make sure that they stay effective and that their firm stays competitive? I would say don't just look for opportunities to apply machine learning is probably the main thing it's perhaps a bit of an annoying answer to that question but i mean if you go on google's machine learning training for people course the first subject in that is called don't be afraid to launch product without machine learning (laughs) so i think yeah it can be really useful but don't feel like you have to use it focus on the problems you actually want to solve and i think some of those problems for actuarial teams say within reserving for example would be things like how do we produce results at the level of granularity that the business wants can we do that with our current processes do we need to have some form of automation with perhaps the lower value or lower materiality classes do we have a clever way of allocating results down how are we making sure that we're keeping on top of trends that are emerging in the data How do we review diagnostics across a wide range of metrics and segmentations? So I'd focus on those sort of questions that can help you 
deliver what the business actually wants. And it may be that machine learning can help you with some of those things, but don't fall into the trap of just wanting to deploy machine learning because it's something you feel like you should do. Obviously, you've gone through the process of developing a machine learning tool from scratch, pretty much through to it being a really useful tool that we use a lot. Do you have any kind of key lessons that you've learned from going through that process that others might want to be aware of if they're starting to think about this journey? Yeah, sure. I'd say the main one would be try to get from the data you have to a first kind of prototype solution as quickly as you can. And that may mean that you don't actually use machine learning initially. And actually, I would recommend you do that to start with. The key to kind of doing machine learning well is having that quick iterations on your machine learning solution. So what I mean by that is that, say with InsureSight, where we're trying to spot trends and preserving diagnostics, we wanted to get a loop set up from the input charts, diagnostic charts, to prediction of whether there was a chart or not. And then internally, we could go through that, look at it, and then say whether we agreed or disagreed with it. We could see how well it's performing. And then you can just very quickly loop over that to understand, okay, it's not performing so well on these sorts of trends. That's what we should focus on. If you try and build something that's brilliant and amazing from scratch, you'll probably never finish it and you just carry <laughs> on doing that because it's never going to be 100% perfect. So getting that iteration loop up is really key to make sure that you're focusing your attention on the right things. So is it that we should be improving the quality of the data labeling in our training data or just the number of observations we have in the training data? Do we need to use a more sophisticated modeling technique? All those sort of questions you can't do unless you've got that feedback loop set up and the ability to train models and assess them very quickly. That would be my main thing that I learned from my work in machine learning. So Charlie, I know it's quite an exciting time for you and for us now because we're very close to releasing the next version of the tool that you masterminded, InsureSight. And I wonder if you could just explain to us briefly, what is the next iteration going to do compared to the current version? And again, how is that a sensible evolution of machine learning in the area of preserving? So what we're doing with the next version, which we're calling InsureSight Predict, is to allow people to ask InsureSight to process a segmentation for them. So a set of reserving classes, and that could be anything from, say, 10 to 200 reserving classes. And then InsureSight will make picks for all of the sort of things on traditional methods that actuaries currently apply to reserving. So your development factor model picks, so the weighted averages that you're using, whether certain things should be excluded, whether tail needs to be added, initial expected averaging periods or allowance for increasing or decreasing trends and then what methods are you using are you using a bf or initial expected or a dfm paid or incurred modeling so having a automated first cut for all of those things that an actuary would typically set manually now with a prioritization of those that it's actually got a low or high confidence as to the value that it's selected and this is an example of augmentation because although you're automating that first cut with InsureSight Predict, you'll have the ability to go in and override those assumptions where actually you don't agree with it or you've got some information that you know about from a conversation with the claims handler that's not kind of in the triangles, if you like. Very much that staying within traditional reserving methods for the time being, because that's what people understand, but automating the picks that people make and people understand how those are made so they can also then go in and override those if they need to. The other thing that we're doing, which I think will be interesting over the... We'll start to use more and more over the next year or two is 
InsureSight predicts gives you a framework for assessing how good a particular reserving method is over another. And that's how it comes up with that first cut results. You can compare how well a paid DFM predicts the last two years of experience compared to, say, using an incurred BF. But with that framework, we're initially using that in just traditional reserving methods. What I find quite interesting is actually then bringing in non-traditional reserving methods, potentially machine learning driven methods, and assessing them within that framework. So you can use it to actually pinpoint and say, the machine learning method gives a very similar number to incurred DFM on this particular reserving class. So why would we necessarily use it? Or actually, it's giving a very different number in this reserving class. And it's actually shown to predicted recent experience better. It gives you a framework to actually say, yes, there's value to deploying these models in certain reserving classes. Or would say, actually, no, it's, it's not worth our time. Okay, so it's actually a way of rating the effectiveness of reserving methods over time. Exactly. I mean, one question that I have, at least in my mind, is given that this software is mimicking what a hopefully sensible reserving actuary would do in terms of the typical judgments and ways of using the data, how do you know whether what you've built is effectively a very conservative actuary or a very (laughs) (laughs) optimistic one or a middle, how do you calibrate the degree of judgment that this virtual actuary exercises? The way we've developed it to date is that it is looking for a true best estimate answer. I mentioned earlier, we score the quality of different methods by looking at how well they've predicted past experience. In that assessment, there's equal weight given to if it underpredicted say incurred development or overpredicted incurred development. So it's very much the objective that it's been asked to solve is or being rated on is equal weight to adverse or good experience. And one of the things that's interesting is to see, well, actually, how does that compare with what a human actuary says? Obviously, with Solvency 2, we're all supposed to be setting reserves on a best estimate basis. And I'm sure that most reserving actuaries are intending to do that. In reality, the pressures of the business and just sort of caution over your job and not it's easier to explain a reserve release than it is a reserve deterioration. I suspect there is prudence in best estimates still. And there may be something that you could program in or ask InsureSight to do to actually give more weight to adverse experience rather than good experience. If you did actually want some element of prudence in there, you could code that into your objective function if you wanted to. Is there another area that we haven't touched on that would be profitable to talk about for a bit? I think we've talked about claims handling a bit already. The area that we've seen a lot of work in and insurers getting benefit from on the claims handling side is using, say, drones to take photos or using satellite imagery of, say, where there's been a hurricane or some other natural disaster as a way of getting a much quicker assessment of potential loss cost and also actually, we can see that these buildings have been damaged, so we should try and contact that policyholder. A, provide them with a better service by getting in touch with them sooner, and B, getting an assessment of that loss cost much more quicker than you would currently by needing people on the ground. Is that a example, though, of machine learning, or is that just an example of increasing use of technology? How does the drone interact with machine learning? So you could get part of the way on that by just with technology by using satellite images and drones where the machine learning comes in is being able to then process those images automatically so if you've got a huge area that's been affected you can very quickly then say okay the machine learning can work out that's a building or that based on the image before the disaster happened there was a building here then can assess say the percentage of 
damage to the property based on the difference between the before and after pictures. And if it's a relatively small area or you know there's only one building that's potentially affected in your portfolio, then yeah, you don't really need machine learning. You can assess that yourself. But if you've got, say, potentially thousands of properties that are affected, that's when you need a more automated approach and machine learning can help with the processing of those images. One other area I wanted to touch on, and I know it's an area that all three of us have got some past experience in, is working with insurers who write business that gives rise to personal injury claims. And of course, some of these claims take years to settle and involve a lot of skill and judgment from the claims handler, not only in settling the case, but also in setting an estimate of what the case is worth at any point in time and then revising that over time. And we know how hard it is to get that process working in a consistent way so that those case estimates are a good predictor. Is there a potential role for machine learning in improving on the way that that process works? I think there's potential for it. I think one of the challenges, particularly on the kind of larger personal injury claim size, is thankfully they are relatively infrequent events. So that's obviously a good thing. But from a machine learning point of view, it means that the amount of data that you have is probably going to be fairly small. So I think that will always be a challenge. I think one area that's quite interesting, and I think there'll be a lot more development in over the next few years, is more credibility, machine learning based approaches, actually feeding in, incorporating human judgment with the results of the machine learning model rather than just getting an output from the machine learning and having more stochastic output from that as well, rather than just a classification or a prediction of what's going to happen. Speaking to board members, what sort of questions should they be asking of their actuarial teams to make sure that they as a firm are making best use of machine learning? Well, I think the answer is a lot of people aren't at the moment. Actuaries are expensive, so you kind of want to make the most of them that you can. So I think any tools that can augment and give the actuaries superpowers so they're not spending lots of time doing more mundane jobs and they feel they can actually use their expertise be more creative in the analysis they do not be held back by their current processes which stop them from doing that kind of what if analysis or i wonder if i did the reserving on a different segmentation how that would affect the results which can often be where you kind of spot things and the better you can do that and kind of actuaries can satisfy their curiosities the more likely you're going to spot things sooner before they become a massive issue. Using machine learning to augment and help actuaries do their job is where I would, if I was a board member, I'd be saying we should be doing more of this as a firm. If you are that actuary or someone working in the insurance industry and you're thinking, oh, maybe I have a situation where machine learning could be helpful, what would be one of the first places or some first places they should go to look to understand a bit more about it? Do you have any recommendations from your own journey? There's one particular book which I've been through and yeah, it's very well written. There's lots of good examples. It's very well regarded in the kind of machine learning world is an introduction to statistical learning. It's a really, really good book. It's got a lot of intuitive explanations of how things work alongside the maths. So even if you're not kind of a really, really mathematical person, you can get a good feel for how something works, as well as understanding how to implement it and the maths behind it as well, if you want to. I'd say more generally beyond machine learning, just learning how to code as well. Is you need to know that how to apply machine learning well, in my opinion, but also you can get a lot of other benefits from pure automation of processes or just having more reproducible processes by moving your processes more into code than using, say, tools like Excel. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Charlie. It's been a really great conversation. 
we always like to end on something a little bit of fun. So I guess what is the one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? I've been learning to free dive over the last year. Oh. Oh, wow. I recently moved to some or recently about a year ago now, moved to Froome in Somerset. And there's an inland diving centre called Robster Key, which is about 10 minutes drive away. And yeah, it goes down to about 40 metres. I've only been down to about 20 so far, but it's really good fun. I recommend it to anyone who sort of likes water sports. Wow. I was not expecting that. (laughs) That's awesome. So how long do you have to hold your breath for to do this? I mean, you kind of build up, but I do about a minute and a half now when I'm actually diving. That's loads. Wow. Underwater for about a minute and a half. But yeah, if you look at the professionals, it's crazy some of the stuff they do. They go down in the world record for like with fins not having like an assistance of a, a weighted sled, which is what some of them do. It's down to like 120 meters. And they're down there for like, yeah, five, six minutes kind of thing. Oh. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Well, that's very. Finally, do you have any recommendations of something to read, watch, or listen to that you've particularly enjoyed recently? The book I'm reading at the moment is How Bad Are Bananas? which is by Mike Berners-Lee, the brother of Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web. And it's all about how bad are certain things from a emissions point of view. So I quite like it because it gives you a real insight into certain things, how bad's flying compared to eating asparagus that's been flown in refrigerated from Kenya or loads of other things, just to kind of have someone who really knows it and has spent a lot of time researching and understanding it. It gives you a real insight to help you think about personal decisions how you can make an impact but also how businesses can have more of an impact as well anything that's particularly surprised you for example how bad is asparagus that's come from kenya that's really bad <laughs> bananas are actually great so oh good <laughs> kind of calories or emissions per calorie point of view bananas are one of the best things oh that's such a relief <laughs> you like. the thought of giving up banana milkshakes well, now you've well, me the milk is really bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much, Charlie. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.